And I went back and they said, look, this is bad. You, there is no way to rehab this. You need surgery and there's just no way around it. So I signed for surgery. Biggest mistake of my life. And the, the real surgeon who was hired and got the money was never even there. So for the folks who are listening, they'd probably be trying to reconcile how you as many years as an RN then have this these experiences of poor health care. And it sounds like you were surprised that you received poor health care, but you worked in the system. Well, this is what I have to say about that, because I do believe people that are in my kind of situations, you are doubly traumatized because you realize how brainwashed you've been by your education, by your experience, by all the things you've learned. And even you didn't know what happened, why it happened. This is just so corrupt in every system. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, podcast host of Medical Error Interviews. And in this episode, I chat with Nurse CC. She's an RN and has a lot of valuable expertise and wisdom from both sides of the healthcare dynamic. But it was CeCe's experience with multiple medical errors that have permanently damaged her body that have motivated her to share her story of neglectful and abusive encounters with medical providers. CeCe had an adverse drug reaction to a fluoroquinolone damage that was compounded by inept and egotistical physicians and a system designed to respond to medical errors with deny and defend and denigrate. Nurse Cece pulls no punches in telling the tragic truth of the power dynamics, push for profit, and the wholesale of humanity by the medical mafia. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, 
Podbean, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can also become a monthly patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash medical error interviews. Premium patrons get access to video versions of most podcasts. Do you need a counselor to deal with your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Nurse Cece, and a note of caution, some people may be triggered by her experiences with the medical system. So, Cece, I like to go in chronological order, um, and I think you've prepared some notes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up in a very middle-class white suburban family and was born in 1957, but uh, probably north of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. I was one of four children. I had a very tough childhood due to family dysfunction, but I was very ill at the age six with a spinal infection that resulted in extended hospitalization inability to attend first grade for half of the year and confinement in a body cast and body brace for years. So I had some situations then um, that I really never overcame, but I did a good job. Um, But despite these obstacles, I was smart. I had tenacity and fight that would make me the awesome person I am today, despite much suffering and societal disapproval. So I got through the childhood stuff with a lot of Oh, pain, let's just say. And I fought my way to be the first on either side of my family to put myself through college. I entered a collegiate nursing program in a religious institution where I hardly fit in, but I had the ability due to my family dysfunction to become a chameleon. And instinctually I knew how to acclimate and become accepted in any environment. But once I got there, a new world opened up and I was on fire. So I graduated at the top of my class in a very, most people don't know, nursing is a very difficult college education to get through. Um, And then I began working in a hospital technical job, also in high school paying, which allowed me to pay my way at this private institution, which at that time was pretty pricey even then, but it allowed me at that hospital job to support myself and finance my tuition, books, transportation with a small student loan. So I graduated, I became an RN in 1979. Now in the technical job, I loved that job in the hospital. I loved the drama. It was life and death, front row seat to people's most intimate moments. Um, But nursing was hell and I only knew hell all my life. So I loved it. But what I got out of that was my whole life up until then was I had empathy, even at that point for any human suffering. And this became more and more of a curse as I aged. 
Of course I married. I was pretty. I had a supervisory role within 18 months of graduation, despite the fact that I was hardly prepared to be a, a staff nurse. And by society's yardstick, I was doing very well. Eventually, I reluctantly had children, which was interesting because I never even liked children. But my husband wanted kids and I was like, okay, I will have one. And I had the most miserable pregnancy that anybody could imagine with horrendous complications and never once had one maternal feeling and I feared the whole time, what, what will happen to me if I have this baby and I don't love him? And I was asleep for the delivery. And so I didn't hold him. <laughs> this will make me cry. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Emotions are a good thing. I know. But they wheeled me out of the recovery room and passed the NICU. And they pointed to this baby in the incubator. And they said to me, that's your baby. And all of a sudden, I had this unbelievable love that I had never experienced in anything in my life. And that was it, man. Motherhood was my priority, not this stupid job or anything like that. So I spent many years until I guess I was 42, uh, just raising my family and doing whatever I could to be the mother because I always set the bar too high to be the most awesome mother, and I was. But I had to work, and I, even though once I had kids, I did not want to work, but that was not a possibility in any way, shape, or form, so I did work. But I took jobs like a school nurse, in which I went for my kids. I had no desire to be a school nurse. In fact, I thought they were lesser nurses. I liked the drama. I liked life and death, but that was also a big learning experience so so you um, chose to work in an environment where you're closer to your kids versus an environment that really stimulated you career-wise yes i spent 19 years in an acute care setting hospital um doing uh med surge nursing for some of it but then i went to uh like a, a little step down ICU and did cardiac for the last eight or nine years. And in that time, I had a second child and that child was born with terrible birth defects. And that was quite the journey too. Also marred with having to advocate for him and bad doctors. And, but I, I was strong and I could fight for my kid and I, he's, He's um, not blind, which he could very well be and still struggles with that disease, but he also had open heart surgery and that was another disaster. And he'd be dead if I wasn't the person I was. And I'm very proud of that because my kids are the most awesome thing that I've done. So I fought on until I had this surgery until, until in uh, 2002 and unbeknownst to me at the time because I was out of the hospital fluoroquinolones had become on the market and when I had been worked in acute care they were not part of what we gave so at some point when during my school career they were given but 
through some very weird situations, I did discover eventually that I had Leviquin in 2002 during the surgery. Now, when I did discover this, it was through a, a very weird way, but I remembered, oh my God, I remember after that surgery, I could not stop crying. I couldn't leave the house. I was a public spectacle. And when I did go back to work, I was the meanest witch you ever saw. And I had, I had total control prior to that of all my um, behavior. And I went off on somebody for something they did. And it was not good what that person did, but she certainly didn't deserve the treatment I gave her. But on my first post-op visit, now granted, here was the nurse returning to work before she should. I remember saying to the surgeon who was a friend of mine, you have got to give me uh, an antidepressant, I mean. And he did, and I did well, and it controlled this behavior problem I had until 2011 when I was given Cipro. Okay, so how come you were given Cipro in 2011? I, I was, I had bronchitis and I was at work and being the nurse, all nurses are like this, you never call in. We are short staffed, you have an allegiance to your fellow colleagues, but in the setting I was in, there was nobody to replace me and then, you know, a thousand kids would be left without a school nurse and no medical person. And in today's environment, there are very sick children in school that need a school nurse. And I drug myself to work, but one day I was like, I gotta get an antibiotic. So I went to an urgent care after work that day thinking I needed treatment because I needed to go to work. And I had been ill for quite a while, but anyway, I went in and that person gave me Cipro and I, I don't even know, I thought it was a, <laughs> oh, a cephalosporin because it had started with a C, but I should have looked it up, but I'm not sure anything was even evident had I look, looked it up, but from the moment I took that, I went downhill. So what I'd like to say now is what I was like in those years before that day, and, and, and this would describe me. I had worked at times three jobs to try and help pay the tuition for my kids because I nobody paid mine and that was just something I wanted to do for my children. I had gotten a master's degree. I even got a real estate license at one point. And my kids were just everything. Um, anyway, but even though I had encountered bad medicine, not only with my child, but with my mother-in-law, I was no longer able to advocate properly for myself on many reasons. So one by one, from the moment I took Cipro, which I found out I had taken it, and that's another situation, but I could track this down through insurance medical records. I remember calling my internist and saying, I can barely get out of bed. And of course I was off for the summer. I I normally had gone to work and gone to school because you go to school to the day you die in that situation. And I called and they did a few tests on me and I went in and they said, well, you're just getting older. And I thought, okay, 
I guess, I guess they're right. And I accepted that. So what kind of uh, symptoms were you experiencing after the Cipro? Well, I couldn't get out of bed. I had no energy. And prior to that, I was doing what I said before. I worked three jobs. I obtained a master's degree. I was going to school after hours, working weekends. And all of a sudden, I couldn't get out of bed because I was so weak. Now, that is now termed fatigue. But at that point, I used the word weakness because I was too weak. Um, it just, I, I could look back on this insurance-wise. I accepted this as normal. I drugged myself to work. Uh, I had been on an antidepressant since the surgery in 2002, which I knew uh, you know, because of what I said. Um, but I, everybody would attribute any symptom I had to life stressors, um, all sorts of things that make you think you have a psychiatric problem. But I didn't understand it. And I probably am still going to realize things as my time goes on, because now I will be actually out of work seven years in December. So that's like over six and a half. So for the folks who are listening, they'd probably be trying to reconcile how you as many years as an RN then have this, these experiences of poor health care. And it sounds like you were surprised that you received poor health care, but you worked in the system. Well, this is what I have to say about that, because I do believe people that are in my kind of uh, situations, you are doubly traumatized because you realize how brainwashed you've been by your education, by your experience, by all the things you've learned. And even you didn't know what happened, why it happened. I had to be told by somebody, some guy, who knows what he did, he was probably a machinist, on the internet, have you ever taken a fluoroquinolone? I mean, this is just so corrupt in every system. You just can't know. And so we have a lot of guilt that other people don't have. And, but I do understand how it happened now. But as it went on, I got angrier and angrier and angrier as one thing after another became apparent. And at, after one, mal, other, one more malpractice situation occurred, I, be, I am now a very angry woman. And that is not a good thing because it uses up a lot of energy. But that is my a healthcare professional's experience who's maimed and totally devastated with no life after this kind of thing happens. So um, as things progress, after you know dragging myself to work, by 2012, I had been seeing a psychiatrist all along who I actually love. And he's been good to me and they recently took his license, um, but he only knows what he knows. And they took his license because they were after him. So if they want to take your license, they will do awful things. And he was a very good man and he did nothing wrong. And I feel very sorry for him. And I've told him that. But 
I told him in the spring of 2012, which I can track through insurance records, I can barely get out of bed. I'm having trouble. And he said to me, because he would listen, but he only knew what he knew. I had a diagnosis of sleep apnea. And he said, why don't you try this med, which they give to people not only for MS, but they give it for um, sleep apnea for energy. Now it's, it is a stimulant, but it is in no class an amphetamine, but they actually don't know why it works this way, but it allowed me to function until my tendon ruptured. But I got through the day on this medicine in the morning and then I'd have to take it at lunch because that was it. And then by the time I got home, which was you know early because I couldn't finish. I mean, I normally would have been there all hours of the night finishing my work because that job is so overwhelming and I am so conscientious. I kept insane hours, but I'd come home and go right to bed. And then did it again the next day till my tendon ruptures ruptured. So another thing that happened in this time period from 2011 until the tendon ruptured, but I didn't even see that was I became pathetically agitated and no longer could be the mother Teresa I had become in my school nurse days because being the empathetic person and also having a childhood of family dysfunction, when I saw these kids suffering and I worked in poverty levels for many years, I felt their pain and I went to extreme, extremes to help these children as best as I could. And many times I couldn't help those kids, but I did what I could doing things I don't, nobody should be doing through the job, but I did it because I knew, I knew their pain, but I was having trouble. So I could no longer be Mother Teresa. And I started saying, no, I'm not going to do this on 600 kids. I don't have time. I mean, I truly had very ill children and they needed my attention and I couldn't be Superman anymore. And they didn't like it. When people who are yes people start saying no, you are a problem and what is wrong with you? And there was something wrong with me, but I was basically in survival mode, but it wasn't, it didn't occur to me what was happening until it was too late. So towards the end, and I wound up going to 5,000 doctors for 5,000 things that were going wrong along the way. And everybody said, whatever they normally say, the foot doctors, oh, you have a bone deformity. Um, I had neuropathy. Do you think any foot doctor diagnoses that, let alone a neurologist? And that's a story in itself. itself. But um, it was what it was when it was over and I had to deal with it. So I knew I knew something was wrong, but I, no matter how many doctors I went to, it didn't matter because of their dysfunction. So because I had such low energy and I was having anxiety, but I didn't, even though I've learned about anxiety, I, people would tell me and I could sort of spot it on others. 
I had no idea what this was all about because I was so abused on the job. So what happened to me was I, I started saying no, they did not like it. There were a few times I actually couldn't take it anymore and picked up the phone and said, I got to leave. And that was evident to the people who knew what was what they were doing to me, who ha one happened to be one administrator and he created some problems. And thank God, another situation, in the end, I went home and stayed home for a while, but when he filed a report against me, I waited. And when I filed my report, he looked like a jerk. So nothing did happen to me. But the other reason that something didn't happen to me was we'll talk about later. So um, I, I also was having a terrible problem with my feet. So I had been to many doctors, um, which I could trace back to after the Cipro foot doctors. And they diagnosed me with bone deformities. Now that a foot doctor doesn't suspect neuropathy on anybody is pretty sad, but it was what it was. So, and I still was like in denial. So in the spring of 2013, my left foot swelled and it was painful and I had done nothing. I could never be athletic as a child because of what had happened to me, my spine. But I was active in that. I was a very active person, did the treadmill daily prior for decades. Um, I saw a foot doctor, another foot doctor. I had seen at least two before that and told him just what I'm going to say now. My, look at my foot. It's swollen. I'm having trouble walking. But I didn't injure it. So he did order an MRI. Now, unfortunately, even the radiologists are bad. So when I went back for the results, he said to me, well, you hurt yourself, it says a bruise. And I said, I told you, I did not hurt myself. And he threw the paper at me and he said, look, that's what it says. And that was what it says, but that was hardly what was going on. So I left again, I was off for the summer, went to bed for the summer, and the foot got better. So when the fall came, I went back to work, started walking, started, got my energy from that drug called, it's called Provigil, if anybody wants to know, but it does allow me to survive at this point. And, and I so, take very little of it. And so Cece, um, you returned back in September. So now we're into 2014? No, we're into June of 13. No, yes. Oh, 14. You're right. Oh my gosh. You are right. I was getting, you are right. Please forgive me. I was paying attention. Yes, you were. And I love that. So in the fall of 2014, I dragged myself back to work thinking, okay, the left one got better. That's great. Never putting it together. Well, yeah, you were in bed the whole summer, but okay. I returned to work and immediately that now the other foot swelled up and became faint, painful. And I, but I could no longer rest and I certainly couldn't take off for three months or two and a half months. And I figured, okay, the other one got better. I'll just muddle through. So in October, I was walking down the hall with this pathetically swollen foot. And all of a sudden I heard it snap. And for one moment I thought, Oh, I think that feels better. This might've been what it needed. 
but it was my tendon rupturing. And then that horrendously swollen foot became twice the size and I had twice the difficulty walking. Now, I didn't know where to go at this point. And I ran into an orthopedic surgeon I knew as a nurse. And I said to him, look at my foot. I don't even know who to go to. This happened before. And he said, well, a rheumatologist or a foot and ankle person. I said, I've been to a rheumatologist because they diagnosed another problem in another body organ. He said, well, then why don't you go to a foot and ankle surgeon? Here's my partner. He's a good guy, go see him. And I did. So in November of 2014, and he caused my utter devastation, but he was referred to me by another orthopedic surgeon that was of high esteem in my institution. So I showed up for that appointment in 2014, November, still struggling pathetically to walk and get my work done under very difficult circumstances administratively. And this guy, because medicine had now become big business, I call it medical mafiaism. He, he has fellows that he takes on, that he pawns his stuff on. Now fellows in any place are already doctors. So he had already been a podiatrist, but now he wanted to be a foot and ankle surgeon. So he had to do a fellowship with a foot and ankle board certified doctor in order to be able to operate on people to that extent. But I didn't think too much about it. So I'm now telling him everything that happened, but I'm telling him that now, of course, I can say to him, but not even knowing as a nurse, this was obvious neuropathy, my soles on my feet burn. And he says to me, wow, that sounds like neuropathy. Are you diabetic? Wish I was not. And I said, no. And he never said another word. He never put that on my medical record. I had an MRI of the ankle. And the, the real surgeon who was hired and got the money was never even there. And so, um, of course, I had the MRI. And I had a horrendously ruptured tendon along with tendon issues all over the foot because they could read an MRI, unlike the other place that did my other foot. And I went back and they said, look, this is bad. You, there is no way to rehab this. You need surgery and there's just no way around it. So I think I got to go to work. I guess this is what I got to do. Cause I got to get, so I signed for surgery. Biggest mistake of my life. And so I now muddle to the last day of work prior to Christmas vacation, still walking on that foot. And I had been taken on as a pianist because I had the one joy in my childhood was that I learned to play the piano and I was good, more than good. I, I accompanied professional singers at the age of probably 11 or 12. I was really good, but that went to the wayside because of many reasons. And, but I still kept it up in whatever capacity over the years. So I was playing in church and I would uh, help them out with services. 
And so in the morning, because my energy level was so low, I'd take that music into the back of the music room and I would practice furiously this music. So unbeknownst to me, because of political things that were happening, our union president, who they were out to get to, needed an accompanist for the high school choir. And he, they were trying to get him and he was given no money. And he says to that music teacher who heard me play, can you play the piano for my chorus? And he said, no, I don't know how to play the piano. And he asked him, well, do you know anybody that can? And that guy had been in his room listening to me play my church music and said, well, the nurse next door is pretty good. You might want to ask her. And he took me on and I jumped at the chance to do this because I loved music. It set me on fire. It was just awesome. And he was a very mean man and everybody was scared of him, but that served me well in the end, but I was scared of him. But he took me on and that music was hard and he tested me and he said, yeah, I think it's good enough, just like that. But he took me on and for several years, very ill, I went there at night after school and did this, but I had the time of my life and it was the last day of my work before they operated on me. My hands went into spasm during the concert at night and I didn't think they were going to work. And I, I sat there as he talked to the audience, just rubbing my hands so they would open. And during that time, I got them to open and I could finish the last song, which wasn't quite as demanding. And that was it. Now I did all that till on the day before my surgery. And the next day I went into surgery and I never worked again after that. So it was a wonderful experience because that man, as they were coming down on me, protected me from not being fired because he needed me. But I did come to respect him. What a musical talent and that was a jewel at the end of my career that I look back on. And it was just so precious. So on December 20th of 2013, I went into surgery and I was like a lamb being led to slaughter. And mind you, by that point, I probably had been a 30 year veteran nurse and smart, top of my game. So they tell me, Prior to surgery, the anesthesiologist comes in and he says, well, we do popliteal nerve blocks. So um, it's for pain control, post-op, because you're still given general anesthesia. And this is what we do now, and this will help you. So is I that say, a okay. pill? It is. Um, popliteal is the area behind your knee. That's called the popliteal area because there's an artery in there called the popliteal artery and anyway what they do with this block is they take a form of what people know as novocaine lidocaine but mine was rapivocaine and they inject it directly into the nerve to numb the area from for the surgical site but they have to numb the area at that point of the nerve behind your knee so that it's numb from the neon and they get adequate numbing 
to the end of the foot for the surgery. Now that doesn't wear off for quite some time. And I'm sure the reason for that is now everything is done outpatient. So they got to get you out of there. And how do they get you out of there? So you don't feel pain. They numb you up and that wears off the next day, maybe late that night. And what happened to me late that night or the next day, even that wasn't a wake up call for me, but it eventually became apparent. So the following day, the nerve block wore off and I began screaming at the top of my lungs. Now, even many years in retrospect, I think, okay, the only person in my 19 year, 20 year career in a hospital, no, I was there basically 25 years that I had ever seen scream at the top of their lungs were patients in a burn unit. And at that point, there was not adequate pain control. Those people suffered, but those were the only patients I ever heard scream like that. But even that, you can't, okay, you're drugged, you can't think, and now you're in pain at the top of your lungs, but it's taken me many years to make that correlation because what we do in medicine is there's a one a zero to ten pain scale well that just doesn't cover it whatever your experience is in life you base that pain scale on so and in in addition to that whatever that healthcare professionals experiences in life that's what they base it on so if you go in and you say i'm having a 10 and they look at you and you're sitting there and you're not screaming at the top of your lungs, you're not a 10. And they will actually say that to your face. But I understand this now. And I didn't then. But I knew I had given birth with no anesthesia to a 10 and a half pound baby. Suffered horrendously. I wasn't even, I was in pain, but not screaming at the top of my lungs. But I did call the physician, the surgeon, and I said, I, I, I said, I, I, this is awful, but I had never had orthopedic surgery. He said, don't worry, this is worse. But you, it, it's, it, that part will be over soon. And I accepted that, but I also was crazy and dying of pain. And my husband and my neighbor were there, who was my best friend. And I grabbed the bottle. I said, give me in three of that Vicodin, because I knew that wouldn't kill me, but I knew two wasn't going to help me. And I downed three Vicodin. And then I started screaming at my husband, who faints at the sight of blood, to get the dressings off of my leg, because they were, my leg was on fire. It, it, I felt like the dressings were creating pressure, but, and he was scared. I scared everybody. They stood there like, I mean, they just didn't even know what to do with me. He took those dressings off or I think I would have hurt him, but none of that helped. Um, so that went on and I reported everything to the surgeon and he'd say to me, well, maybe you have a, a blood clot in your leg. And I said to him, are you kidding me? I said, my ankle, my calf is not swollen. There's no redness, there's no heat. This is not a blood clot. And he said, okay, well, then he said to me, well, do you have problems with your back? And I said to him, well, no, I, I remember saying no. 
And then I remembered six months ago, oh yeah, I did pull my back out. So I tell him that, which was a mistake. But I'm as honest as the day in lo as long. And I guess in retrospect, I have to say, you better start lying. Um, and he, I said, well, no, wait a minute. I did pull my back out in June. Well, what does he do? It's your back. He orders an MRI on my spine. <clears throat> now I know now every organ in my body is gone, but my whole entire spine is gone. My jaw is gone, but the spine, the lumbar spine was what he MRI'd and it was horrendous. Now he also- So CC, what caused you to lose your spine, your jaw? You also mentioned your organs. What, what caused all that? Well, we believe as the epidemic of fluoroquinolones, because this is not well known as, no adverse drug reaction is known, but what is known is that it destroys every organ in your body on a cellular level. And so now, even though they have black, what they call black box warnings on certain diseases concerning these group of drugs, um, now they have a black box warning for fluoroquinolone associated disability. Now, what that means is you have more than one organ affected. Well, I had enough insurance and I had enough smarts to have everything investigated and every organ I have is gone. So bone wise, yes, my jaw, my cervical spine, my uh, thoracic spine and my lumbar spine, but I, I only had the lumbar done at that point because he ordered that because I had this horrendous leg pain only from the knee on down where they had given me that popliteal block. Um, and just so, to sort of unpack um, about your spine, so it's like the bone is disintegrating? Well, the tendons go, um, the, the, the discs are gone. Um, there's just total degeneration of every part of the spine. Okay. And when you're older, they will say, oh, that's your age. So again, they will attribute things to their age. But I'm sorry, most people my age were, at that time were working and they weren't laying in a bed. So they're wow. idiots. So I think other folks have heard about fluoroquinolins um, causing tendon rupture. But this sounds uh -huh. so frightening that it's impacting all body organs and yes. bones and tendons, Absolutely. et cetera. So yeah, that's very frightening. Well, yeah, and it's only the smartest that know, which I'll talk about that in the end, because this is part of why it goes on. But um, I have had the opportunity to interface through social media, but not only social media, but I also, I'll tell you about that later. I also, as a last ditch effort, went to Mexico for stem cells, but I'll talk about that later. later. But those people were from around the world and they're just like us. So anyway, so what followed after I got the report for the lumbar MRI from the surgeon was, oh, this is your back causing that leg pain from the knee on down. And I'm thinking, I gotta go to work, okay. Okay, I listened to him, but he doesn't know how to read an MRI. And eventually 
I had to discover what they did to me. So I submit to three epidural spinal injections, invasive, harmful, toxic procedures, because I got to get better. And I've now been out of work for a couple of months and still in horrendous pain. Cece, can you describe, uh, for people who aren't familiar with what an epidural is, what is that? What the theory behind that is, an epidural is a steroid. But, and they inject this into areas in your spine to decrease swelling, which even that doesn't work. If you read the data, it's a bogus money-making procedure. And what people take that to relieve nerve compression caused by the spinal deterioration. So what like everybody's heard of the sciatic nerve. So what they were telling me was this pain only from the knee on down was because I had spinal de uh, degeneration that was in like putting pressure on the sciatic nerve coming out the lower part of the spine. And that is not what was going on, but I did it. I had to go back to work, but it didn't help. And of course, that guy was his partner, and it was all a money-making scheme with very incompetent people, despite the fact that they have gone to very prestigious places, and their resumes are very impressive, but they are idiots. So anyway, uh, I would say after the first or second one, the guy does say to me, because I did tell him, and he says, well, I think we ought to do a nerve conduction study, and to see how your nerves are. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, hello, a long time ago, but I didn't even know that. So I say, okay. So I show up and I go through this very painful procedure and he, <laughs> he realizes, oh, this woman's got neuropathy, bad. But he also says, oh, I have tarsal tunnel syndrome. But he does say to me, you need to see a neurologist. And I say to him, well, who do I go to? He said, I don't know any. Now I know neurologists are very difficult to get into. And he doesn't know anybody in the area. Uh, okay, so I'm left on my own to find a neurologist, but I am a nurse. And so I get into the first neurologist associated with one of the big medical mafias in my area. And I go to see that man. And that was in the beginning of February of 2014. I forgot one thing. Right before I saw him at the end of January, right before that MRI, I was in so much pain that at four o'clock in the morning, now my husband had been tired of hearing this, I got in a car and drove myself to an ER. That's how I was desperate. I have never done that in my life. and. I went to them thinking, because that's not how it works, maybe they'll do this MRI sooner and I can figure out what's wrong. And they wouldn't, of course, because that's not what an ER is for anymore. And they did find some findings that did support the eventual outcome of this malpractice. But by the same token, nobody listens to anything you say. And so what they write down that I was saying is absolutely bogus. But I didn't see that until recently. But I, I am going to address this, but you cannot even do this legally because 
that's another system that's corrupt. It is what it is. So I find this neurosurgeon who's with this big group thinking he's good. And I go to that man and he, and I, I have no qualms about saying this, but I would say this about very few medical people. He had to be on, have a substance abuse problem. Now, why, why would I say such a thing? Because when I showed up, he kept leaving the room during the exam. I didn't know where he was. I'd have to go out and find the guy and see where he was. And when he was done, he never even did a neurological exam, but they now have access to all your records through all this electronic medical record system. Now, instead of letting their own head think, but this man obviously couldn't think, they start looking at everybody's records and they just follow the other guy's uh, situation. And if it happens to be wrong, well, too bad for you. As in, in my case, it was. But when he did come back eventually and he looks at me and he says, without a neurological exam and being a neurologist, you need to see a neurosurgeon. I said, okay. Now, I think the, I don't know if these appointments, he now leaves the room for another time. And I, lay, I, I sit there and I go, well, is he coming back? I have to now go back out and find him in another room. And I say to him, is this over? And he said, oh, yeah, 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 you could check out. Now, I'm sorry, that is just like, there's something wrong with somebody, but there's something wrong with all of them. But in his case, I would have to say he had a substance abuse problem. But I can't prove that. And he's no longer with the institution. And that's also a problem because what do they do? They do not file complaints with the medical board they just let him resign and move on and that, that man's been in multiple institutions and that can be found on the internet based on any tragic situations where hospitals cover up even physician or in one case nurse killings of the patient they cover it up so they don't look bad and it's just i just this is not who i am i can't even imagine they anybody could do this but trust me they do yeah i've heard hospitals just cover up their own mistakes and ship off the bad actors and make them somebody else's problem well they do and in this case of the nurse serial killer which happened uh in five institutions in my area and uh, you'd have to read about him he's in jail forever Thank God, because I do, I do feel sympathy for him. He is a sick man, but the people that are still in high and mighty places, those are the ones that are the sickest, but at least he's locked up. But, but they knew it. Nurses reported it. And it, one nurse was so brave, and you can read this in the book. I think it's called The Good Nurse by Charles Graven. She went to the DA and the DA tried to investigate it and they had a body exhumed, but the hospital didn't tell that the pathologist what drugs were known to be diverted in the hospital that probably killed this man. So that pathologist tested for 100 drugs, but not the one that was diverted that the nurse knew and had reported and of course, that he went on and the hospital looked really good until the end and they looked really bad, but they're still in business and doing just fine. 
He worked in nine institutions and that was done over and over and over again. And they think he probably had killed three to 400 people, but even he is so sick. He didn't even know who he killed, but wow. it, people knew, people knew. And that can be accurately researched through that book with all the legal references. So, I mean, I just read that and I'm just like, oh my God. I, and some people will say, as they did the other day, well, I'm alive. Uh, I just have to go on. I am not glad I'm alive. I would have preferred had this drug killed me because this is horrible, this journey till death, but it's okay. I love my kids and I'm plugging on as long as I can. So, okay, so I go to a neurosurgeon. I find a neurosurgeon and he does know what he's doing and he hears my story and he looks at the MRI and he shows, he said, come on over here. He shows me. Okay, you see the nerve, you see those disc spaces, there is no pressure on that nerve. That pain in your leg is not coming from your spine. And I think, oh my God, but I still don't understand. So I don't trust anybody at this point. I go to another neurosurgeon at another institution. He says exactly the same thing. He says, you got to see a neurologist. I said, I did. And he said, well, listen, I'll get you with the group who is in his medical mafia. So I do, because that's where I worked for 20 years. Oh my God. So I'm pawned off on a nurse practitioner who, let's face it, I am a nurse. I am an advocate for nursing and, and how smart we are, but I'm sorry. Nurse practitioners should not be seeing patients in place of physicians because even the physicians who have done fellowships for many years in their specialty are incompetent and all she knows based on her little bit of information is what that doctor who she's now associating herself with has taught her and in my case and I'm sure many others but I'm probably the smartest of the very few that ever find out she was incompetent but she was schooled by him but she was nice and i actually say to her at this visit which was in march of 2014 could i have ms and why i said that was as i waited in the waiting room i was surrounded by horrendously deformed crippled people with neurological disease and neurodegenerative disease and i i was just like oh my god there's something really, I knew there was something bad wrong with me. But when I said this to her, she so compassionately leaves her little computer, comes around, holds my hand and she said, there is no way you have MS. And I think, oh, thank God. But she was wrong. First of all, nurses never say something, are never supposed to falsely reassure a patient that way. Secondly, I had had a surgery and I worried that it, it, this neuropathy could be from vitamin level deficiencies. I supplied her with medical journal articles to confirm what I was saying and she would not order the tests. Sent me to somebody else who when I went to him, he said, I don't know how to do this. 
And then I went back and then I have now been given a diagnosis of tarsal tunnel syndrome from the surgeon's uh, EMG guy, which is a nerve conduction guy who has erroneously read my neuropathy as bad, but I have tarsal tunnel, which I didn't have. And tarsal tunnel is also a compression of nerves in your feet from other things other than disease like in my case they were saying and i don't i'd have to go back and read it was from entrapment of varicose veins so now i go back for a follow-up visit for my surgeon he sees that on the emg and i'm a ripe opportunity to have that surgery now here i am i think it was march thinking oh my god i've been out of work almost four months. I'm going to lose my job. Maybe this will help me. I sign on for a surgery I don't even need. Is I'm given anesthesia drugs that are just bringing me down, but I'm desperate. And I go through that surgery. And what was April. that surgery supposed to do? Relieve like the pressure on some of the ner a nerve in my foot. And it just wasn't true, but I was desperate. So I did it. These are all reputable board certified people. And so I knew enough. I don't know why, but I said to him, I'm not taking that popliteal block if they try and give it to me. And he said, oh, that's okay. He said, this isn't as painful as the other one. So I wasn't pressured or even given the option of doing that, which was, thank God. I mean, I would have been a cripple but I was a cripple at that point. But anyway, so I come home from that surgery, which was in the beginning of April of 2014. And I'm at home convalescing still with this horrible pain from my right side of my knee down to my foot, which is a branch of the sciatic nerve. And I think I, I can't wait to see a, a real neurologist like the nurse practitioner said, follow up with him in three months. I got to see him soon. And I call and I get in with him in May. And I go to that jerk who is at my institution that I spent 20 years at thinking I'm with good people. And he, here I am and I always look good, talk good, drag myself, sit up and they can pawn me off as a little older and not able to take pain. And now I have no, you know, like they'll, they will not look at anything the way they should look at old records instead of, so what he did was, and I'm begging him at this point to do the vitamin levels. So he says, well, I'll do a few. And he does do a few. Now, even the ones he did, what happened with those were unbelievable. But he also says, oh, I see you had tarsal tunnels since you saw mine. I said, yeah, he said that that would help. And I, I don't know, maybe it did help. I don't know, but I'm still in pain. And I said, and he says, I have it in the left foot too. And, but it doesn't show up on that nerve study till really bad, but he'll do the left foot. And he, all he says to me was, well, I wouldn't do the left foot. So what he says to me um, is, you know, I'd like to repeat those nerve conduction studies. And I had already been given the order for the arm ones. 
because when you have this kind of neuropathy, it's everywhere. Arms, legs, but really it's in your face. It's in your organs. It's very, it's everywhere. And so I say to him, okay, I have an appointment in June 5th because I'm now trying to go back to work. And I went back to close my office up, but I struggled. And, and I, but I knew I had to pack up because I wasn't coming back. And oh, I just got my medical records. All lies, lies, lies. But anyway, he says, "Okay, we'll have four of them done on that June fifth appointment." So I show up for that appointment, and I have it done. And that guy was abusive, also, but he did sort of know he was smarter than anybody else, but he wasn't good, and he was mean and ugly and rotten to me. Um, and then I start calling for the results because as this man furiously shocked my one leg because he wouldn't do all three limbs and he was a mad scientist, finally I could hear him say, oh, this is starting to make sense. So I knew he found something. So but this is the, what it was. this is the EMG. He's a doctor that who is a neurologist, but only a few of them learn to do electrophysiological studies, which are nerve conduction studies. So you can go to a neurologist, but that doesn't mean they know how to do the study. So he was his partner who knew how to do the study and that's who did the studies. And he was mean. And I, I did say to him, you know, I know you're the only board certified neuromuscular neurologist in the area will you see me instead of doctor whoever he was i don't want to say his name because they could sue me for this believe it or not that's how corrupt this all is and he says nope and i can't tell you what's wrong but i knew something was wrong and i start calling furiously for this report and he doesn't call me back but i also had been on the internet and some very smart probably truck driver, let's say, that we would all down as not being very intelligent, says, have you ever taken a fluoroquinitol loan? Well, I had, had, I got enough data that I knew then, oh, that's what's wrong with me, but I didn't know even know them what the extent of it was. Anyway, this guy will not call me back. I get on the internet. I find I got to see there are peripheral centers of excellence in neuropathy. Now, you can't find that information on the internet any longer, and I find that very interesting, but at the time, I could, and the closest one to the state I lived in or live in was in New York, so I picked up the phone before the local neurologist called me back with the report because he wouldn't call me, and I got an appointment within a week or two. I mean, like, no questions asked. Come, and so eventually, but I had that appointment after calling probably five times and saying to the nurse, look, he better call me back because I feel like I'm dying. And if I'm dying, I need to make arrangements. So I need to know what that EMG said. And she plays a little guessing game with me and then just says, sorry, I can't tell you. So when he does call back after that statement, I said to him, well, what did the EMG show? And he says, oh, nothing much. Lie, they lied to you. It did show, it was eight pages long and started when I got it, which he tried to bar, but I'm too smart for even him. And it started with, this is a highly abnormal and complex EMG. So he lied. 
And I said, well, listen, I could barely get out of bed. He said, well, would you like physical therapy? I said, I just got done with physical therapy. And then I said to him, look, I need answers at this point and I'm leaving the state. And I have the appointment and he became immediately angry. And he said to me, well, I hope you have your medical records. And I said, well, I did request them, but he tried to bar them. And that was the end of that phone call. But I was smart enough to know to call medical records. Now they will not give patients their medical records right away. You will wait a knee on if you ever get them. And there are laws against that, but we don't count. But what I was able to say to her, she did say to me, if you have these facts to a doctor, we'll fax them right away, at least the EMG. So I happened to be seeing somebody else in another state that after work, killing myself, and he, he has the record. But I think there's something else wrong with me, but he was pretty smart. And by the time I got there, he had the record and he gave it to me, but he said, um, I can't help you, but I know you're going to New York. This is what you need to tell him to do. So I went to New York the following week and saw this very famous man. And to my benefit, another fluke, because I'm not sure there's a God anymore. I happened to have an appointment the day Obama showed up and I, it took me five hours to get there. And they told me ugly on the phone, don't think cause you're crying. You're, we're, if you get here, we're gonna see you. But I did get there when I showed up, I was the only person that had gotten there that day. And lo and behold, this guy had nothing to do. And he saw me, he listened to me, he did every test that could be done. And we don't even have some of the machinery in our area that, to do some of that test, let alone why they didn't do what he did that they could have performed just shows you patheticness. So I had everything done that day, except an MRI that had to be done at another building, which was done on another day. But I went back in two weeks for the results. And this very famous guy who treated me very well on that first day when nobody was in the office says to me, okay, this is what's wrong with you. You have small fiber neuropathy. Now that is your small fibers don't show up on a nerve conduction test. Um, they only show up through a, what they call a skin punch biopsy. And the nerve conduction test was also highly abnormal. So I also have a different kind of neuropathy. But anyway, what he said to me was, they should have never given you that block. He said, they destroyed all the nerves in your leg. And he said, there's nothing I could do for you. Now, the other thing he said was all those small fiber neuropathy symptoms I had been having since Cipro were probably related to uh, Cipro. Of course, they had put me on something else after that, but I knew I couldn't get out of bed after the Cipro. In addition, I had B6 toxicity, which is a, a cause of neuropathy. Now, that's a supplement you take. Now, when I went back to the other neurologist, he actually did that test. I was toxic there and he never told me. So um, at least this guy knew what he was doing and did everything, 17 tubes of blood, skin biopsy. He said, um, I can't do anything for you. And I started to cry and I said, well, how will I support myself? And because the office is now full of people, he said, you can go on disability. 
and he took me hysterically by the arm, ed escorted me out of the office hysterical, and that was what I was left with. So I go home, because now I know I'm, this is bad, and I can't find an internist because I had to leave two since the surgeries because they weren't listening to me. And I call my first internist who I happen to know her husband and I work with them. And I email him and I said, could your wife call me? It was a Saturday night. I I'm direly ill and she does. And I tell her what's going on. I said, look, all I want to know is who's your internist? I, I Nobody's helping me. And she tells me. So I get an appointment with that woman a week later. And I, I go to her. Now, that I, by that point, I'm laying on an exam table because I'm too weak to sit up to speak. And she comes in. And I, I am with her to this day. But this is another issue. People have to change. She immediately takes one look at me, doesn't know me. And says to me, you're going to have to sit up to talk to me. And I say to her, I cry, I'm so weak, I can't sit up. And so she does listen to me, and she is a good woman, but she listens to my story, hears it. Now I have the evidence documented, documented. And she says, well, they MRI'd everything but your brain. Let's do your brain. And so I go, okay, okay. And I do that. Again, submitting myself to toxic dye. But I get a call, I don't know, a day or two later, late at night. And she says, look, Mom, I got your MRI results. It looks like you probably have multiple sclerosis. And you need to see a multiple sclerosis specialist. I said, well, I'm not coming to anybody here. And I think that if I go to a big city university that I'm gonna get better care, which I did not. So I have her arrange an appointment with the head of MS at a big prestigious university in a major city, somewhat near me, but it takes me two hours to go. So I saw him in July, I guess. And I was scared to see him because his reviews were scathing but I was desperate and I went there and he says, yeah, I'm sure you have MS, but he's an old guy. He doesn't even understand his own business. He thinks he's too full of himself to even understand how as the head of MS at a prestigious university thinks he knows better than what eventually I found out was the only way to diagnose MS is there is no test. They use criteria called the McDonald criteria. And after going to three other out-of-state institutions, I was pronounced not meeting the McDonald criteria and they could not give me that diagnosis, but he did. And he wanted to start me on medication immediately, injectable, highly toxic stuff, but I knew enough, ah, I want another opinion. So I went to the Cleveland clinic and saw a guy there laid in the back of a car with my husband and my friend writhing in pain on on the seat and uh, laying down because that's how weak I was and thankfully he was a little better and he said that nah. he said this is a weird story but I've heard words weird stories but I wouldn't take that medicine what I would do is just keep doing those MRIs if you keep getting what 
are called white matter lesions, which basically are dead spots in your brain that they identify through MRIs. He said, then start the meds. But I had enough information that there was no way I was taking those meds, but I couldn't keep going back to that far of a state. So I had to keep going to the other jerk. He badgered me about not taking these meds. He would hear nothing of fluoroquinolones. And I was just abused by that man until I finally left him because I just couldn't take it anymore. So this but, is the guy who said that you had MS? Yes, and he's the head of MS at a very prestigious big city university. So very bad. This is not a good system. This isn't one person. This is This is global. This is everywhere you go. So if you think I'm odd, I am not. I'd like to say, oh, well, I just had a bad experience. No, it isn't just me because now I know enough people. It's everywhere globally. So anyway, um, I never took the meds, had a few follow-ups, didn't take the dye anymore because I had been enlightened about the risks of that. And But eventually I was reading from my bed about an article, journal article, because I read medical journals. 40 red flags that this is not MS. And the first one was small fiber neuropathy. So because of my medical background, I can contact that lead author and I do, and he's in Colorado. And I say, I just read your article and I think this is me. And five minutes later, he emails me back. And he says, well, why would you say that? And I tell him a little bit of my story. I said, it will be hard for me to go to Colorado, but um, I will if I have to. And he says, nah, one of my co-authors is up in New York. Why don't you go see her? And I did. And that's where I finally got a, the right thing. But it is what it is. Uh, and they did more than anybody else did. But using some of the other's data, and they said, you don't meet the McDonald criteria. We're not saying it is an MS, but you don't, we can't give you that diagnosis at this time. And so nobody really understands how these dead spots in people's brain happen. However, um, there's many of us fluoroquinolone victims who do have these dead spots and are given a diagnosis of MS. And, and the people that are not as smart or maybe not as harmed as me do take those toxic drugs for nothing. But so do one in five MS patients in a recent article where one in five people with MS are misdiagnosed, some of them being on those toxic drugs for decades. And that comes out of their own profession. So this is a bad, bad, it's a bad world. So, Wow, just to, point, a, a bit of a recap, just make sure I have everything straight in my head, sort of chronologically, Cece. Okay. So um, you're given those fluoroquinols, quinolins, which caused uh, deterioration in all those different parts of your body, especially the rupturing of your tendon in your feet. So that was one right. uh, medical error. Then you were given mm -hmm. the, uh, the pain blocker in the back of your knee, which caused, caused permanent pain, permanant damage. And then you were- Nerve damage. Nerve damage. And then you were given an MS diagnosis, which is not correct, although you have sort of similar things of MS uh, with your brain MRI, there's some spots in there that are not supposed to be there. That's correct, but I don't have classic MS symptoms, but that 
that is a quasi that that's a disease that defies a lot of things that's let's just say but i think everything is like that with chronic disease they give it a label many of these things will turn out to be the same thing it, they're just manifested different based on your genetics right and so then you've also found recent research where fluoroquinolones uh, seem to be implicated in ms well what what the black box warnings which is comes from the fbi fda when enough patients report problems because you will not find physicians doing this is for they have it on tendon rupture they have it on peripheral neuropathy they have it on neuropsychiatric symptoms which that would include suicide anxiety depression but they have not done it based on that particular thing of white matter lesions because there aren't enough of us who have reported things to do that now what I will tell you is we have one doctor who is an ad adverse drug reaction researcher and he is a good man, but get in touch with him for another reason because he's inaccessible. But he, he, he was interested in what I thought I needed and he did talk to me. And when I said to him, I had been given a diagnosis of MS. Now he's done extensive research. He is the reason many of those black box warnings were ever done at the FDA. And he says to me, yep, I got a lot of you people with white matter lesions. So this is also corruption. And this poor man, he will, if there is a heaven, and I'm not sure there is, he will go to heaven because he has suffered advocating for us because there are a few good people, but not a whole lot. And not a lot of people that are willing to do what he did. Um, and just one other thing, Cece, small fiber neuropathy. What is that? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a disease, like basically damage to the nerves, but it's not just one disease. There are small fibers that are nerves. There are large fibers that are nerves. So when you have diseased nerve, nerves, that can be called small fiber neuropathy. But then you have the other kind, which people don't understand that is large fiber neuropathy, which is the thing you hear about um, that diabetics get, because many of those suffer neuropathy. So um, there are also people like MS people who had what they call neuropathic symptoms that sound like neuropathy, but their actual um, disease in their brain is causing uh, them to feel that pain. It's not a disease of their peripheral nerves. And your brain and your spinal cord is called your central nervous system, and all the rest outside is called your peripheral nervous system. Does, does that make sense? Yep. Well, now I got to go on to one thing that I didn't get in chronological order. So with this nerve pain, and this is really important for anybody to listen to, and probably one of the reasons I am anonymous here, one of the reasons, that pain after that surgical disaster was of such mammoth proportions, I could never have survived without an opioid. So I was given an opioid uh, on that ER visit that I had. Uh, she did give me opioids, but what she gave me was 
tramadol, which at the time wasn't labeled an opioid. But we have since realized that that drug is an opioid and very, probably more dangerous than other opioids. But I needed that drug and because I was told that that nerve damage was permanent and it would not get better. And the only thing I could do for that pain were, were horrible things, invasive stimulators in my spine, you know, opioids or another class of crazy drugs. And so I had no choice to stay on those opioids, but by one and a half years later, I was getting almost psychotic. I never abused those drugs, but I was truly losing my mind. And all I could think of, I was, I had a morbid preoccupation with death. Not that I wanted to kill myself, but that's all I wanted to read about. And that's all I read about. And, but I sobbed uncontrollably that I still couldn't leave the house because I was a public spectacle. And one day I took one, no, four times a day. That's all I took. Never, ever once took five. But one day I took it and I started crying even worse. And I said to myself, these are making you worse. And I stopped them abruptly because nobody thought they were an opioid. Nobody thought that was gonna be a problem. And thank God I'm the person I am because I writhed in withdrawal pain in my bed for weeks till I was through that withdrawal. But I knew what it was, but I, I think I was too sick to even go to a doctor. I mean, thank God I didn't. Um, but when it was over, a miraculous thing had happened. That pain that I was told would never get better was basically gone. And I never would have known it because those drugs play with your mind. And when they want that drug, they create that pain in your mind. So you think you need that drug. And when I realized that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And I went back to the doctor who very innocently gave them to me. He said, well, that would be really unusual. And I got a little upset with them. And he said, I'm not denying that was your experience, but it's just unusual. Well, no, now we all know what opioids do, don't we? And now that is a very dangerous drug, kills people. And it's oral. It doesn't have to be. But I, I guess I had enough brain cells that even in that almost, I wouldn't have been term psychotic because I knew who I was. I knew person, place. I knew reality, but my mind was dark and that went away. Thank God. So um, the last few years when I realized uh, nobody's going to help me, I spent them seeking a holy grail so that I, I would not kill myself because this is hard. I mean, everybody's gone, everybody abandoned you. Nobody understands. Even my minister never called me again when I conferenced with him about whether I'd go to hell if I killed myself. But at least he told me, no, that's not in the Bible. But he never called. He'd visit the person who wasn't a parishioner across the street, but never even picked up a phone. This is a bad human race, so. I guess what I'm gonna end with is um, 
this is where I'm at because I did my last ditch effort before I ended it all. And I, I had come across things that a lot of, uh, quite a few of us were going to this Mexican clinic for stem cells. And one, the first person that was a fluoroquinolone victim went and did very well. I mean, she went from bed to hiking 10 miles a day. So I thought, oh, good enough for me. I mean, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to take a lot of money and they charge a lot of money. I took money. I didn't have loaned it. And my husband and I went to Mexico and so do quite a few others. And for me, I had a wonderful experience. I did actually get better, but for everybody, but me and that first person, they actually got worse. So I, I guess I'd have to say, I wouldn't recommend anybody going because it must be a genetic thing, but I did improve enough that I, I wasn't cured, but I wanted, I could live I could live this way. It's hard, but I could still live this way. But if that allowed me to connect with people globally, people from Germany, people from Cyprus, uh, all over the country, and we become a, became a little group that talks daily to support each other. Um, but we all basically don't wanna live anymore and have multi-system damage. But this is, they are going through the same things I've gone through. And that is my only real support aside from my dog. So I love that I did that. And for me, it did not make me worse, but my life is still hard. But for them, they actually got worse. I, I don't understand it, but I cannot blame the person who runs that clinic because we were treated so well. She gave her, it her best and she was horrified that most of the people didn't get well. She's a good, good woman. And they treated me like no American had ever treated me throughout this whole ordeal. And I love her and I love those, those nurses there, but I can't say to anybody, go, he'll get better because I, I don't know why most didn't. So it is what it is. So uh, where did you, where did you get the stem cells injected into your body? I went there, you go there for people like me for five weeks and um, you take it intravenously along with a whole lot of detoxing things like chelation and there's all sorts of things they give you intravenously. But I would say their main clientele, there are Lyme disease patients who um, are very much like us and you have to wonder if they're fluoroquinolone victims, but a lot of them thought I was a limey. <laughs> so, you know, we do understand we're similar and we are. This is not well understood. This is molecular damage that cannot be identified by current science. So that's why people with chronic fatigue, which I have that diagnosis and myalgic encephalitis, we're all the same thing, but we're given these labels and we think we have just this disease in the other person with my situation doesn't have yours. Well, that's just not true. And the only place I know that is seeing that and is ever going to see that is the Open Medicine Foundation out of uh, California. Private, global, and started by a horrendously injured son of a, a genetic scientist 
and it's only him that knew medicine wouldn't, wouldn't help his kid. And medicine, he does admit, will probably never help his kid, but he's getting somewhere, but he knew the medical establishment wouldn't. So it's a private foundation and good for him. And I think he will help people like me, but I'm too old. I think maybe the young ones have more chance than me, but it's okay. I live my life. I certainly had many blessings along the way. So I'm okay with this. Just help the rest of you. So this is the defect because I see things as a healthcare professional and now a devastated patient. We are cash cows that keep money flowing to the FDA, pharmaceutical industry, healthcare lawyers, and social security. They name us, they gotta support us basically, and they deny many of us that, but not me, I was lucky. I met their criteria and their age limits. So I had no trouble, but everybody's making money off us. In addition to all the people that are in the alternative business, who there's no basis for that, but nobody supports them. So they do have a bad rep, but we are cash cows that had kept a global profit industry. And it, I don't care who it is, this affects everybody, but the, uh, the part of our economy, and I, I think it's called the GDP, but I'm not, that is not my area. I mean, healthcare is like uh, 20% of, of all the money that's made here. That's a big amount. We do in the pharmaceutical business, we're going down, but they're bringing everybody down any before that. So some of the things I uncovered, let's start with doctors. So where do they get their information? We get our information from the FDA and we look in a publication basically known as the PDR, Physician's Death Reference. Now, where does that information come from? That comes when a pharmaceutical company gets a drug approved. Now, all they have to do to get that drug approved is jump some hoops in a lab and then test it on a very limited number of people, let's say about 100, but it's limited. And then on those people, and I have no idea who they are because anybody that would sign up to do that is, oh my God, taking their life into their hands. But apparently people do that when it gets to that point. I've actually seen ads recruiting people locally for that. So people do do that. And so once they are completed with that research, they take those hundred people and then they watch them during that time period, which is very limited. And they say, okay, one out of a hundred had neuropathy, one, well, they'll never see that. So when they compile that data, then that goes to the FDA. And then if they've jumped enough hoops, which there may be a few, but you get the idea, that drug is approved. Now, what goes in that physician death reference that everybody looks at? That is, the data the pharmaceutical company came up with on a limited number of people, and that's what they see. So when a doctor or a nurse goes in that and looks at it, it looks small what the risks are. So then you also find out, which I had no idea. I mean, we all trust these people as medical professionals. The FDA has, okay, they rely 
on a voluntary adverse drug reporting system. And so physicians aren't even required to fill out such reports. And people, first of all, people are on so many drugs, they don't even know what caused what, let alone put anything together. Secondly, they don't have time because of the dysfunction that's going on there. So who makes those reports that, that eventually are made for black box warnings and so forth? That is me or very smart people like me, but don't think for one minute it's who you think it is because the smartest people I have met through this journey are truck drivers. They are um, hairdressers. They are policemen. They are the smartest people and know the most. Those are who are putting it together and able to figure it out to make such reports. So those reports are not adequately capturing the injured, nor will they ever. Now, that is for a good purpose because as we all found out in the opioid epidemic, the FDA is in bed with Big Pharma. They, there are many things going on there that they allow the pharmaceutical industries to do very terrible things and they don't care. Now the opioid epidemic is a horrendous thing. However, the only way that was uncovered was this guy, I think his name was Mazzanini or something. He was a DEA high level person and he tried to stop that. He knew what was going on and nobody would listen to him. Now he was, had enough clout he obviously had enough money, he left and he went public. And that is the only reason that was ever uncovered, that those this was premeditated. And thank God there is somebody like him, but very few, I, my hat's off to him, but I'm sure he suffered. But he had enough behind him, people would listen to him. And so now we see what this has done. But this has also been used because these are young people and they, they aren't dying of the actual opioid. What happens is eventually they go to heroin or whatever they go to injected form because it's cheap. And then they overdose. And what is our band-aid for that? Well, we're going to rescue them with naloxone. So then that created another problem that all the people that are trying to rescue these poor souls with a needle stuck in their arm dead, then they become violent and hurt the first responders. It's just, and now the public thinks that's the only epidemic that the FDA and Big Pharma has caused. And it's certainly just the tip of the iceberg. So in addition to that, and this can be, I've read articles on this in medical journals. There was recently a survey in a medical journal that said their adverse drug researchers were surveyed. And they unanimously stated they were repeatedly denied publication in peer-reviewed articles. They were bullied, their jobs were threatened, and they feared for the safety of their lives and their families. So basically we've stonewalled any really smart researcher who's doing his job to block everybody from knowing the truth. It's just a corrupt world we live in. So, I guess what I'd have to say is our part in this is we've all been brainwashed over the decades, probably since the beginning of time, but I only know my situation. 
we're on the hamster wheel. We don't have time to pay attention. Oh, we're getting jobs. We're, we're being educated. We get married. Then we try and raise our children. We're trying to survive and preserve whatever we value. But it's an adverse drug reaction. And that data is there. It's just nobody's realizing most of the nation here is on those drugs. And it is a known side effect. Well, basically, mass shootings is a minor number of those people. So they are just playing out the data. But you will never hear that. But aside from that, our politicians are only worried about getting the vote. So whatever the people want to hear is, and that will get them the most votes is whatever topic will get them the most votes. But this is what I know in my heart now. This is coming to an end, not in my generation, not in my children's, but in my grandchildren's because now autism is at a crisis. And we all know, according to them, it's not vaccines. I don't believe that is the entire story, but what I do know that is true based on everything I've learned is one in 48 children now are autistic. Um, where is this coming from? Nobody knows. Well, it's very evident. We gotta all wake up because we all were part of this, but we'll never go backward. It's toxins everywhere in our food, our oil, our soil, our medications, our vaccines. And now, because my generation has carried forward the toxins from the previous generations to their generations, and now we're giving them vaccines in immature nervous systems in a nursery already damaged with intergenerational DNA damage, now we got autism and one in 48 autistic kids born now, but that doesn't include the disabled of 5,000 other diseases. That doesn't include all the people on social security leaving, living off the system or everybody else. This is coming to an end because there will not be enough able-bodied people to work to support all the disabled. So they, while the whole earth is coming down and we are Americans, Canadians, French, English, it's going on everywhere. I think it's already too late and that is not a good thing to feel. And um, I wish it wasn't. I wish what I was saying was wrong, but I know it's right. I just know too much and this is way much to have to know because it's very sad. But I always was a realist from the moment I was young till today and I saw things for what they are. And if you deny this, you're just not seeing it the way it really is. And I thank you for your time. And if you, I hope people listen to this because please, I think it's too late, but maybe I'm wrong. That part, I hope I'm wrong. Fine, stop this mess we all got going. Cause we all, I love the cars. I love flying in a plane. I love my comfy bed and my rugs and my kitchen. All those man-made products are breathed in toxins. But I loved them too. We, we're never gonna stop cars. We're not gonna stop flying, but we are all gonna go down because of our love of comfort and all the other flaws that every man has. And I'm not saying I'm any different because I fell for it too. It's just, 
I will never get better and my life is hard. So thank you. Thank you, Cece. In addition to the public awareness that you wanted to create, are there any other goals you had around sharing your story? The only thing I have left is to tell it and that makes me feel better. It's the only thing that makes me feel better. So I am so value this opportunity to tell my story. It, it, it truly has helped me survive one more day. Well, thanks to Nurse Cece for sharing her unique perspective and gained wisdom about providing health care, receiving health care, and a health care system operating as the medical mafia. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. You can become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash medical error interviews and signing up as a monthly patron. Video versions are accessible to those who become premium patrons. Have you had an experience with medical error that is affecting your life? Are you living with a chronic illness? Do you need an experienced counselor? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.